need to explain that it wasn't traffic that kept us. We have some good things for you. Sometimes it's difficult to write down and compose and think about every good thing that the Lord may be revealing. But this evening we're going to do our best to do the Word of God justice, which is the star of this evening. So tonight we're covering Jeremiah 4, and we will say, Good evening, saints. Good evening. We are now recording and live, and we have an incredible study tonight. We're going to be covering the content of Jeremiah 4, but we're in an incredible season where God is speaking to us about our direction in our homes, about our direction in our parenting, and we're going to review a few of those things as it relates to the world around us. Because we're living in the days of Jeremiah. And we're going to be a holy light in the days of Jeremiah. Our pastor shared an incredible teaching with us yesterday that related to our divine design. That's not the only incredible word that we've had. We started out this year, our first hundred days, with gathering and cultivating gratefulness. Does anyone remember that? Our point of origin was gathering greatness. But are we just storage units in this house? Are we just gathering? No, our ultimate goal, our ultimate destination was to become a storehouse that was empowered to be a dispensary, one that was producing gratefulness, that was sharing what was needed with the world around us during desperate situations. We've been in the middle of a dialing in discernment during Dark Days series. Our point of origin in this series was to clinch with the darkness of our times, the reality on the ground. But our end goal, our end destination, was to know God, to know ourselves in His light, and to live like we had been created in His likeness and His image, fully empowered in Him to enact His will upon the earth. Has that series been blessing you? It's been stirring our souls. Then we've been maximizing our marriages on yeah. Friday nights and us been rising to meet the call and the expectations that God has for his church and for his home. Come on, is there a husband in the room that can say he's been rising? Yeah. We've been rising to reflect the heavenly pattern where God is the groom and we are the bride. As husbands, we've been growing in our ability to display firm leadership. And in that firm leadership, our wives have been reciprocating and have been beautiful daughters of Sarah that are building up a new house. Now currently, on Friday nights, we're perfecting our parenting. We began by covering the Moses stage and then went on to the Joshua stage this last week. Now we're heading into the stage called the Judges. This next week, we will learn how to parent our children through cycles of sin and disobedience, but how to reckon with the one true king and meet the son of David for themselves. Is that something you want for your sons? That's something we want for our sons and our daughters. Listen, lastly, we want to tell you that we recognize God's hand moving through these series and our time of worship together as he speaks to us. He's marching out to war, and he's teaching us how to march with him. We're surrounded by increasingly dark days that are swirling about in a flood of dissipation, of smoke entering people's ears. But our God has a response, and it is one that is a head-on collision. Somebody say head-on. We're going to have a head-on collision with the darkness. Before we begin tonight, 
we want to preface tonight's study with the lives of the patriarchs. There's a passage that Justin's going to read to you, and it's going to be the kind of mentality, the way that we begin this study together. Amen? Amen. So Genesis 28, 16 through 17 says, When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gates of heaven. Man, I can tell you, often we experience time when we are awakened to a reality that always existed all around us. Have you ever had weeks and months where everything just seems to slip by and then all of a sudden you get into worship and you're like, man, God was in this place and I just didn't know it. I just couldn't see it. I couldn't feel it. The truth is, it can be very easy to be here at LCM and be asleep and not aware of God's proximity. Sure. We're going to fix that tonight. It can be very easy to not know how close God is to your situation. You can easily be led led into fear or be led into all kinds of insecurity because you don't realize God is right there watching. You can easily fall into a temptation or a sin because you don't realize God is right there watching. I want to tell you tonight, God has always been there. He is here right now and He is a very close God. Before we begin, we want to pray and ask the Lord to awaken us to how close He is to awaken us that He is in this place, to open our eyes so that we can see with fresh eyes that God is right here, right now, and He is in our midst. Amen. And does anybody want to pray? Yes. Come on now. No, 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 no. We're not going to pray like a cursory prayer. We're going to pray until we've been awakened. Amen. You hear me? Like with a kind of determination that we're going to see a result. Amen. Carlos, why don't you start us off, and then we will pray after you and keep pressing until we're there. Mighty God, we say no more fear, no more insecurity. We realize that you are in this place and we just didn't know it. Mighty God, we set our hearts upon you. We set our minds upon you. We know and trust your character because you are a good and faithful God. We see that you are in this place with us right now and we take comfort in knowing that you are here. Mighty God, tonight. 
Father, we thank you that you are awakening us now. Lord, we say we hear your voice. Lord, and we are awakening to the battle that is raging all around us in this moment. Lord, we choose to stand in the power of your word and your spirit. Lord, no more average evenings. No more sedate nights. Lord, we say we want to fight with you. Lord, let your spirit rest upon us that we might know, understand, and walk in your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 I think now we might be ready to read the text. So, Malik, Nati, would you please grab Jeremiah chapter 4 for us, loud and proud. Return, O Israel, return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will be blessed by him, and in him they will glory. This is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground, and do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. You men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. Announce in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Sound the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, gather together. Let us flee to the fortified cities. Raise a signal and go to Zion. Flee for safety without delay. For I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. A lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his place to lay waste your land. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitants. So put on sackcloth, lament, and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned away from us. In that day, declares the Lord, the king and the officials will lose heart, the priests will be horrified, and the prophets will be appalled. Then, I say, ah, sovereign Lord, how completely you have deceived his people and Jerusalem by saying, you will have peace when the sword is at your throat, our throats. At that time, this people in Jerusalem will be told, a scorching wind from the barren heights in the desert blows towards my people, but not to the winnow or cleanse, not to winnow or cleanse, a wind too strong, for that comes from me. Now I proclaim my judgments against them. Look, he advances like a cloud. His chariots come like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash the evil from your heart and be saved. How long will you harbor wicked thoughts? A voice is announcing from Dan, proclaiming disaster from the hills of Ephraim. To tell uh, to the nations, proclaim it to Jerusalem. 
A besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. They surround her like men guarding the field, because he has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your own conduct and actions have brought this upon you. This is your punishment. How bitter it is. How it pierces to the heart. Oh, my anguish, my anguish. I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent. For I have heard the sound of the trumpet. I have heard the battle cry. And disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruin. In an instant, my tents are destroyed and my shelter in a moment. How long must I see the battle standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children and they have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil and they know not how to do good. I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. And at the heavens and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains and they were quaking at the hills, and they were swaying. I looked, and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. And this is what the Lord says. The whole land will be ruined, though I will not destroy it completely. Therefore the earth will mourn, and the heavens above grow dark, because I have spoken and will not relent. I have decided and will not turn back. At the sound of the horsemen and archers, every town takes to flight. Some go into the thickets, some climb up um, among the rocks. All the towns are deserted and no one lives in them. What are you doing, O devastated one? Why dress yourselves in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why shade your eyes with paint? You adorn yourself in vain. Your lovers despise you when they seek your life. I hear a cry as of a woman in labor, a groan as of one bearing her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands and saying, Alas, I am fainting. My life is given over to murderers. My, oh my, oh my. Even begin to dissect and to get into these 31 verses of this chapter, we need to go over a review. We need to review a little bit and go over a couple concepts and a couple overarching goals that the Lord has specifically for His people. Do we have that first slide? Do you recognize this slide? Yes. That's good. You should. This slide is entitled, Israel is Foreknown. The first passage on our left here is from Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. It says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, somebody say foreknew. Foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Should be getting very familiar at this point in both the Hebrew and the Greek with the words predestined, uh, the words foreknown, 
knowing that that describes the nation of Israel, the one nation out of all the nations that the Lord picked out and chose for himself to be his very own. He was the one that they belonged to. In Romans 11, we get more emphasis and more insight into this concept of Israel being foreknown. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite. Are you seeing the connection there again? Yeah. His people equals I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Israel is foreknown by God. They were also predestined. Do you hear that word? Yeah. Predestined to be recipients of a special calling. They were predestined from the moment that the Lord picked them and said, I have predestined you for this call. They are currently called, first and foremost, to be his treasured possession. Amen. Currently called by God. Because of their promise, they will be justified. This is a fact. Nothing can change this. Israel as a nation will be justified by the Lord. And we know that ultimately, the ultimate goal is that this will lead to their eventual glorification as a nation. Amen. So our next slide is about the patriarchs. Let's see if we can get that up for you. You may remember this. Abraham is predestined. Somebody say is. Is. That slide says is because it, he is currently with the Father and will be resurrected to see the fulfillment of the promises made. Not was predestined, is predestined. Isaac is the promised son that was called forth from barrenness to fulfill the promise of Israel. Jacob is justified by God, justified by his trust in Adonai, and he became and formed the nation of Israel from his body. Joseph is rejected by his brothers, but he is glorified by God as their Savior and the Savior of the world. Listen, it will become clear to you that God has given them one promise that will be fulfilled. Even if it takes time to accomplish it, the promise given to this one family will be fulfilled. They are currently and always will be predestined for it. We also want to remind you that we covered the nature of prophetic writings in the Bible. Now, tonight we're not going to review every slide. We're in our fourth chapter. But you learn that the Hebrew prophets were used by God like spiritual artists to convey a wide array of vivid emotion that was aimed at impacting the souls of those they encountered so that they understood the heart, the soul, and the mind of God. Yeah. Not just the intellect, not just the words, but the actual feeling that God had in what he was communicating. Rather than technical manuals used to p with pinpoint accuracy, the prophets were carried along by the Spirit as Peter stated. And they felt, they understood, they had to wrestle with God's thoughts and God's desires and then transfer that same impact to their hearers. Yeah. It's almost like these were men that were interacting with the Word and Spirit and yeah. were trying to affect the world around them. I wonder what we could learn from men like that. Listen, tonight we're going to see divine dialogue. Somebody say divine. Divine. Dialogue. dialogue. We're going to see divine dialogue between Jeremiah and the Lord himself Amen. in our subject matter this evening. Is that exciting to anyone? Yeah. We're going to pick up in the first verse of the chapter and read through the second and go from there. If you will return, 
O Israel, return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will be blessed by him. Man, it's incredible. It's, all, it's always like God is extending his hand out to Israel, isn't it? Yes. Look, this is a restating of the original promise given to Abraham. Did you catch the part where it says, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will be blessed by him? Where have you heard that before? In Abraham's promise. The promise that all nations will be blessed by him is what God is restating here. God is encouraging the people that if they repent, it would start the process that was spoken by Abraham. The truth is that process started a long time ago in Abraham, but that this would continue to bring it into completion. Israel would be blessed by God and in right relationship with Him. If they would, in a truthful, just, and righteous way, swear as surely as the Lord lives, then they would be blessed. Then, after Israel is blessed first, then the nations will enter into that blessing. Amen. So once Israel repents and gets right with the Lord, God brings Israel into a blessing that the other nations start to take notice of. There is a remez that this passage is hinting at. This is a reference to what would be accomplished through a Jewish Messiah. We're going to go through a couple passages and you're going to start to see that very clearly. But when you hear God say, if in a truthful, just and righteous way, you swear as surely as the Lord lives, does some of you hear Jesus saying, I will not return until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's some messianic references here. If they would return in truth, justice, and righteousness, say that with me, truth, Truth, justice, and righteousness, God would then bless Israel and the nation through the messianic son of David. That is what they are waiting for in the time of Jeremiah. This point will become more clear when you read Isaiah 59. 14 through 16. I'm going to hand that out. Who wants to read that? Paul Rosales, you get it. And Bim, you get, uh, well, we'll save one for you in a little bit. (laughs) 14. 59, 14 through 17. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far off. For truth has stumbled in the public square, and honesty cannot enter. Truth is missing, and whoever turns from evil is plundered. The Lord saw that there was no justice, and he was offended. So did you hear right off the bat, justice is driven back, righteousness stands at a distance, and truth stumbled in the streets. The same three things that God is promising in Jeremiah. Keep reading. Pause right there. Isaiah is seeing into a vision of what God will accomplish. And he's saying when there was no truth, when there was no righteousness, no justice, God began to work it out himself. Keep going until you read to verse 17. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Man, that is awesome, isn't it? I don't know if you can picture in your mind God doing that, but I bet you it looks a little bit like Jesus in Revelation. 
This is a prophetic passage about the coming son of David who will work righteousness, truth, and justice first for Israel and then for the nations. This is the exact same wording used in Revelation 19.11 about the son of David who is called faithful, true, and making war with justice. The exact same wording. This is also the same wording used by Jesus, the son of David, when he said in John 14.6 that he is the righteous way, the truth, and the life that is carried out in justice. It's also Isaiah 41. It is also everywhere in the word when it's concerning God working through his Davidic son, Yeshua. This is where Paul also gets the imagery outlined in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, talking about the armor of God, our divine design. Say divine design. Divine design. That armor of God, the divine design, is taken from the Son Himself, pictured in Isaiah 59, clothed in all glory. So God is telling them, if you would swear in a right and truthful and justice way, what they're hearing is, is saying, God's saying, if you would repent and turn to me, I would begin to fulfill the promise that I spoke to Abraham. I think at this point we should reread verse 2, and we're going to dig into that a little bit more. Y'all want to do that? Yeah. Right before he reads, I cannot believe this progression here. The Lord himself and his character saying, I am righteousness, I am justice, I am truth. Then he's saying, hey, also, my nation Israel, righteousness, justice, truth. And he says, hey, the Messiah that I'm going to send into the world, he represents righteousness, justice, and truth. And then Paul lays out a revelation for us and says, hey, you can be the same thing. You can be clothed in that same righteousness. You can be clothed in that same justice. Hey, that same truth that is your God's and his nation's, that can be yours today. This is the theme that God is working in his body in us right now. Can you hear it? Do you have ears to hear it tonight? We are going to expound on that as we go to the next verse, verse 2. And if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will be blessed by him, and in him they will glory. Did you hear that last line? And in him they will glory. We want to help you out with this. This is a, there's a lot of pronouns, there's a lot of things going on here, words that refer to other things. This passage, this verse specifically, is foretelling when Israel would be the first to come into relationship with the Lord. So Israel first is coming into this right relationship with these components of righteousness, truth, and justice at play. Then, somebody say then, then. After Israel is restored, the nations will be blessed in the exact same way. Amen. They, meaning the nations, will glory in the power of God that is revealed when God restores his bride, who is Israel, and includes the nations, who are us dirty Gentiles, in his adoption process. This is the desire and the mercy of God, but it is also the election of Israel based on promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. Did you hear that list? Yes. We're we're about to hand out a very important string of scriptures. In fact, it was handed out as your homework last week. Man. Very important string of scriptures regarding Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, 
David, and it's important to get in your mind right now before we start reading that it is the election of Israel based on the promises to these particular individuals. Who wants to read? I do. I I believe you have Genesis 12, 3, sir. Chris, Genesis 18, 18 through 19. Steve, Genesis 22, 17 through 18. Chris, you're right there, brother. Genesis 26, 2 through 4. Timo, in the back over there. Happy t- Timo, you got a smile on your face, brother. I'm wondering why. Genesis 28, verses 13 through 15. Hayes, can you get for us a very important passage? Leviticus 26, 42 through 46. Asad, you'll get Psalm 72, verse 1. And then verses 11 through 20. Come on now. Spencer, Acts chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. Cody, Revelation 7, 4 through 10. And we have one more, I believe. Who wants it? Right here. All right. You got it. Hota, hota. Romans 11, 11 through 15. Now, we want you guys to listen up. Because this is, this is some meat and potatoes that was quite the revelation for us as we were unpacking it this week. As we get into Genesis 12, and Nick expounds upon it. I can been in church a little while and I can tell when homework has been handed out and some people's eyes perk up. They're like, yeah, man, I've been studying it all week. And others stare very intently at their lap. I promise you, if you key in and pay attention, you will understand why it was given before. And those of you that studied it in advance will be blessed that much more. But if you didn't, Give us your attention now, and you will be blessed by it, and we will try to make sure that you do not miss out on what your brothers all around you are getting, because this is a divine word for divine design. Amen. Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. My goodness, we've read this verse before. We love the fact that all peoples on the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. Oh my God, that's me. I'm included in that. Well, hey, we want to bring you down to earth tonight. (laughs) Oh boy. Abram, during this time, was told specifically without condition that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Was not, will be blessed through you if, will be blessed through you because the Lord spoke and without condition he said, All peoples on earth through you will be blessed. But the fact of the matter is, is that obedience would always speed this endeavor. There are several passages that we could point to that say, as you obey, it speeds the Lord's coming. As you obey, it speeds what the Lord desires to do. Obedience would always speed this up. Disobedience may slow it down, but nothing could prevent this from happening. The Lord decreed it. He said it was going to happen through Abraham, and he meant every word that he said. Amen. There was a covenant of sorts that came after this. We often refer to it as the Mosaic Covenant. 
It came a bit later. It, this pur the purpose of this, what we call Mosaic Covenant, allowed for discipline to ensure that the promise would come about in its proper time. This is so key. The Mosaic Covenant, quote-unquote, that we call so often, this was added so that discipline, the law of God, could be added to make sure that the course of the covenant that the Lord originally established and laid down would continue to move forward according to His plan. Amen. Amen. We're learning about one blessing after another tonight. Who has Genesis 18, 18 through 19? Read it loud. will surely become a great and powerful nation. All right. He's surely going to become. Ooh. Not maybe, not possibly, surely. Yeah. Keep reading, Chris, loud and proud for me. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children Ooh. and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Ooh. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So that he will direct his children after him and to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and what is just. That's interesting language that is being repeated. I, I, I don't know what it could mean, but God predestined his nation to walk in the way in righteousness and justice. Saints, this is what Jeremiah is referring to. If you will walk in the way that I gave your forefathers, I will bring you into the promise of your forefathers. Remember, this is a word to a specific generation. The nation will reach this no matter what. Yeah. But he's telling this generation here and now, if you will walk in what I told your fathers, you will participate in every good thing. Ooh, come on. It is the Lord, the Lord who brings about this blessing. No man, no circumstance, the Lord brings it about. Yeah. Obedience speeds the outcome. It causes it to happen now in this generation they could participate in it. Disobedience would not prevent the ultimate outcome, though. These things are true, will be true, and will happen in his nation. This is what it means that Israel is elect. Their destiny is set. The die is cast. It is who they are. Generations may be disciplined by the Lord, but the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he promised. God desired that Abraham would direct. Somebody direct. Direct would direct his descendants in obedience so that the fulfillment of the promise would come quicker. You know, it said direct after him. Mm -hmm. Anybody notice that? Like, how do you direct somebody after you're gone? It's an interesting concept. We'll see if it grows. Look, the desire of God is what caused him to raise up Abraham and then raise up his sons after him and raise up Moses to further direct the generations after him. We have one blessing after another that will build upon themselves here. Who is Genesis 22? Genesis 22, 17 and 18. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Through your who? Offspring. Keep going. They will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now note that this is still being spoken to Abraham. And God mentions something here that he didn't mention in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, he said, I will bless those who bless you. But in this promise in Genesis 27, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Do you see the difference in that? 
This means that this wasn't just an Abrahamic covenant. This was a multi-generational covenant that could not be broken. This was a covenant between Abraham and his descendants after him. The phrase, because you have obeyed me. I know many of you got question marks on that, right? It's not conditional, but because you obeyed me. The phrase, because you have obeyed me, is referring to the application of the promise through obedience. But if Abraham or Isaac were not obedient, what would happen? Begs a good question, right? I mean, it's an unconditional promise. What would happen? If they were not obedient, then God would not break his promise. He simply would have disciplined or raised up another heir in the same family. Because God made a promise to the family, he will always keep his promise to the family. And if one of those men were disobedient, it doesn't nullify the promise. He would raise someone else up in the family. The destiny of the Israeli nation is to bless all nations, regardless of obedience or disobedience. It will happen. This promise is irrevocable and unconditional to Abraham and his descendants. You need to let that sink in. Irrevocable and unconditional. Can't be taken away. Can't be ruined in the mud. God will be faithful to the promise, even if it means disciplining a particular generation. Now that's important for you to know because we're in the book of Jeremiah and God's going to punish a particular generation. The next passage is Genesis 26, 2 through 4. And I want you to get something. He's not speaking to Abraham anymore. Who's he going to speak to? His son Isaac. And you need to pay attention to what he says to his son Isaac. Who's got Genesis 26? For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed. Well, right here, from this scripture, we understand that what we call the Abrahamic covenant is also the Isaiah covenant. Wow. And this is such a revelation that that's not even a word. Isaiah doesn't occur in the dictionary at all. But what was given to Abraham as the Abrahamic covenant was spoken again, reiterated, built upon, built up through his generation, through the son that came from him in Isaac. Nothing can or will stop the initial promises from being completely fulfilled. But... Like we've said before, and we want to reiterate, disobedience does slow the progress, but obedience speeds it up. Look, there are all kinds of qualms with what we're teaching tonight. Uh, I don't want to have you go through all the the hoops that the theologians jump through, all the way that theologians dissect these covenants into dispensational, distinct entities. It does not alter the way that God and the Word views it. And we're going to show that to you beyond a shadow of a doubt tonight. To separate the one covenant. Somebody say one covenant. One covenant. That God has with the one family He has chosen would be just as grievous as separating 
a body part that you were born with because you identify as something different. I just just don't identify as a man with two arms anymore. So I am going to remove... I think your left and right arm are really... They're separate bodies. Yeah, we're not going to go down that tonight. All that we're going to say is that theological surgeons have been attempting transgender procedures on God's covenant for far too long, and tonight we are going to put our foot down for the truth of the word. Amen. Who has Genesis chapter 28? Verses 13 through 15. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. Oh, come on now. The God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. Who are we talking to, saints? Jacob. Come on, somebody say it loud. Who are we talking to? Jacob. We're talking to the third generation here. Keep reading. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have <coughs> All right now. So, mostly in jest, we said the Isaiah covenant earlier. Does anybody seriously consider the covenant given to Isaac to be different than the one given to Abraham? There are two separate covenants in your mind? No. no, we innately understand that the exact same covenant proceeded from generation to generation. And yet we see details that are being added. More color given to the promise. More specificity. One man was promised something that has never gone away, but is growing as God intended it to. The Abrahamic covenant carries through the generations. Period. It doesn't go away. It doesn't change because it's a particular year in history. It stays because it's unconditional and eternal. From Abraham to Isaac and now Jacob, it has never been replaced, nor will it be replaced with another covenant. There are not covenants between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is one covenant that works together to bring about God's promise to a specific family. God added to it. He caused it to grow. He gave direction for the men in their day and time. But they're not different covenants. It's one covenant that has been built upon. The covenant spoken to Jacob is building upon the one spoken to Isaac and Abraham. And they each add clarity, but they do not nullify. You may share in this promise with them. Do you share in this promise with them? Yes. Yes, in the name of Jesus. That's why we're standing here. Something of this family line has redeemed us. Now, as we share in this promise with them, we surely will not share in it without them. The destiny of Israel, the nation, the family, is to bless all peoples on earth, and it will come to pass just as it was spoken in each of the generations down the line. Who is Leviticus 26, 42 through 46? This is going to be a good one. Now, pause before you read that. It's pretty ridiculous to think that we can share in the promise without them, right? You guys know that. We've taught on it many times. It's also pretty ridiculous to think that Isaac would share in the promise without Abraham, right? (laughs) Because they're both one promise. 
Now, usually people don't have trouble in their minds saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all share one covenant. But usually we like to separate the Abrahamic covenant from the Mosaic covenant. And why do we do that? Because we think they perform different functions in our mind, right? Like the Abrahamic covenant is all about faith, and the Mosaic covenant is all about law and obedience. Well, I'm going to show you that those are one and the same, just like Abraham and Isaac are the same. Who's got Leviticus 26.42? Do you see right there in the law? Through Moses, he's repeating Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. The three covenants. Or the one covenant. Keep going. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Mm. Yet in spite of this, in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them. Come on. So as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors, Mm. whom I brought out of Egypt and decided the nations to be their God. I love the fact when he says, I will remember the covenant. He doesn't say, I will remember the covenants. I will remember the singular covenant. The Mosaic covenant builds on the earlier promises by enumerating the generational discipline that accompanies the national election. Because it is a generational covenant, there has to be generational discipline. For example, Abraham's not there whenever Moses is there, right? So there's going to have to be some discipline instituted by God that keeps the family moving forward. The truth truth can be seen and heard in Jewish literature even today. Have any of you seen the movie Defiance? Yes. Remember the prayer from the rabbi? Lord, thank you for choosing us. Thank you that we're a special people, but can you just choose somebody else for a little while? (laughs) It sounds funny to us, but I promise it's not funny to them. The reason why is they understand that because we are chosen, we have a promise that God will fulfill. We also have a special discipline that the rest of the world doesn't have. Man, what's it like to be a firstborn son? Well, you're going to get made an example out of. The election of God, which is an amazing thing, right? Yes. But it comes with the course correction of God. A special promise comes with a special discipline. The election comes with course correction that will ensure that they will always be on the path that God wants them on. He has never and will never reject his nation as a whole. But he will discipline a generation of the nation to ensure that his unbreakable promise comes about. Oh, come on. Man, that's an amazing God, isn't it? It's like him setting up those little guideline rails at the bowling alley to make sure you make a strike every time. This direction given through Moses is not in conflict as much as the theologians say it is. It's not in conflict. It is in direct relation to the promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Mosaic Covenant just adds clarity on how they're going to get there. It's like promising that you're going to drive to one state to another, and then you get told what you're going to be driving in. It adds clarity. It builds upon what is given in previous generations. Look, while we're here, before we go to Psalm 72, let's catch verse 46, because we missed it earlier. Get 45 through 46, and listen to that in light of what Justin just said. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. So pause there for just a second. I will remember the covenant with their ancestors. 
Not a covenant I made that is now gone and dead, but that I've made with them, and I am keeping with them. Keep going through 46. So Moses was the conduit, but it was to the same people. The covenant he was keeping through their ancestors up to this point. Moses did not initiate a new covenant. Moses was a conduit at a location and a time when God expanded the original promise to their ancestors. Saints, you need to reject the idea, the theology, that somehow this is a different dispensation. Even if you don't believe in that, the degree to which it affects your mind as you're reading the word, even though it was never in there, is something that we have to learn to repeal. Verse 46 contains what most people would define as a totally separate age in world history. Not connected at all. A strange time of wrath between the cross and Abraham (laughs) that we have been thankfully delivered from. Except that's not how the Bible presents it. The Bible presents it as continued direction after Abraham to the same sons of his. We serve a loving God who has an answer for Joshua and Joshua's children. But we learn that and emulate that from the people in the covenant. You guys ready to build just a little bit more? Asad, did you have Psalm 72, sir? Please read verse 1 for us. Sir. Hey, who's writing here? It's David. David's writing, and you should be cluing in by now. When you hear the words justice, when you hear the words righteousness, you should be cluing into this silver, this silver cord that's running through all these passages. Of course, this passage we've applied it to Jesus. Of course, it's true in Jesus. Of course, it applies to him. But it is so inappropriate for us to detach him from the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and now David promises that were true, are true, and always will be true. Because God said it. Look, there's more that this passage has to say. It goes on to say all kinds of amazing things, and we're going to get into it right now. But you have to know that this is the prayer of David after having received what men call the Davidic covenant that builds upon all the other prior interactions, covenants, promises that the generations have received before him. Let's pick back up in verse 11 and continue reading stuff. All kings will bow to him, and all nations will serve him. Oh, how many nations? All. Oh. Wow, all nations will serve him. That's incredible. Keep going. For he will deliver the needy who cry out. The afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence. For, for, for precious is their blood in his sight. Mm. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. Let grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. Let its fruit flourish like Lebanon. Let it thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. 
they continue as long as the sun. Are you guys hearing phrases like save the needy from death? Yeah. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. There's another line, silver lining in this. It started with Abraham when the Lord went out and said, hey, look up at the stars. This is your offspring. There is an eternal nature to this covenant. The Lord will save his people from death and they will rule and reign together. Now, we know the end of the story. Abraham, all he knew was, hey, I'm looking up and I'm seeing these stars and I know that my offspring are going to be like them. Come on. Me and my offspring are going to be just like these stars. Except his sons got further revelation. Mm. And then their descendants through Moses got further revelation about how they were going to be in the land forever. And then David's sitting here and he's prophetically speaking to the Lord and he's saying, you're going to save the needy from death. Your name is going to endure forever and it will continue as long as the sun. It's not till the New Testament that we get further clarity on the sun, moon, and stars and their uh, role in all of this. But as the Lord speaks, this covenant is expanding in all directions. We're getting further revelation and the Lord is helping it to continue on the tracks that he wants it to go. Amen. Keep going, Asaf. All nations will be blessed through him. Yeah. They will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. We want to reiterate to you, this was spoken to David about him, <laughs> And about his sons. This particular promise. It does not abrogate. It does not nullify. It does not do away with. The promises spoken to Abraham. To Isaac. To Jacob. To Moses. And then to David. It builds on them. It's not possible to accept. That the whole earth will be filled. With the glory of the son of David. Without Israel. Being filled with the glory of the Lord. I'm going to say that one more time. Yeah, come on. I'm going to say it one more time. It is not possible to accept that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Son of David without Israel itself being filled with the glory of the Lord. Not possible. They are the recipients of the promise. It has to come through them first. Come on. Generational discipline may occur, but Israel's election, as you know, will stand forever. Somebody say amen. Come on. All nations will be blessed through David, through his son, who is also, incidentally, a son of Abraham. (laughs) Look, in your own time, we mentioned it earlier. I just touched on it briefly. If you have time, we want you to study on the promise given to Abraham, stating, look at the stars, so shall your offspring be. This is undoubtedly in reference to the deliverance from death that is spoken to David in this passage. See if you can get law, prophets, and writings, Old and New Testament, on the eternal nature of this covenant. Come on, man. All right. Acts chapter 3. I do. Acts chapter 3, 24 through 26. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, 
and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Just pause for a second, Spence. We're, we're, this is not part of the notes, but do you hear the familial nature of what he's saying? Just like in Leviticus 26, we're referencing the promise that is still in effect for the descendants of the men that received it. Just like when they're coming off of Sinai in verse 46 of chapter 26 in Leviticus. We're building on an existing promise. Go ahead and finish it out. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Listen, saints, do you know where they're standing? This is Peter speaking. And he's standing in Solomon's colonnade while he's speaking about this generational promise. And he's speaking to them about a promise that has gone through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all the way to David while he's standing in a colonnade that David's son built. (laughs) Yeah, but where's Solomon's colonnade? It's in the temple in Jerusalem. This is not disconnected. It's not disjointed. It is unified in the mind of the writers of the gospel. He mentions one covenant, not covenants. You are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant that God made. Saints, we need to begin to understand how the writers of the Bible understood God's covenant with his people. Now, Samuel was the prophet who anointed David into kingship as a continuation of the original promise stated to Abraham. You notice how he says Samuel in the prophets? Well, I wonder why. Perhaps it's because it's the prophet that took a shepherding boy, anointed him, and was the conduit like Moses that a continuation of the covenant came through. Come on. See, we need to understand this concept of a conduit. These are men that are receiving a revelation that God has already had. It is ongoing and growing in our perception of it. But the lamb was slain before the creation of the world. He knew exactly what he was going to reveal to men. And it is one continuous covenant that we're finding out more and more about as he reveals it to the sons of men on earth. Peter is bringing this to mind to announce what the son of David is doing in the first century. And what will unfold in Messiah's second coming when all wickedness has been turned away. The covenant initiated with Abraham that was built upon through the law, specified and given clarity during David's day. This covenant, in God's eyes, is one and will not be done away with any more than it was done away with in Peter's day. Nothing has changed between us and Peter, and he saw it as one. Listen, I think at this point, We should go to Revelation 7. Four through... Four through... Ten, ten, man. Get it. Read it loud. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Wait, from the tribes of who? Judah. Not Joseph Smith? No. No. (laughs) Not Salt Lake City? No. Israel. Keep going. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Man. After this, I looked. Wait. 
After what? You mean after the 12 tribes were included? He's about to see something else? You mean after at the very end of the book it remains Jewish the entire way? They are in order of operations here. And then something happens at the very end? After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language. We made it! Standing standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice. Look, the story stays Jewish the entire time. It stays one covenant, one promise, one family the entire time. The blessing is fulfilled in the 12 tribes first, as spoken through the covenants that all connect, that are all building on each other. And then after the 12 tribes come in and receive their blessing, it is fulfilled in the nations. Amen. Look, we're about an hour in, but you already know more than guys who have studied in seminaries for eight years and have got a Ph.D. in theology. I'm going to reference just a couple scriptures, and I want you to listen to this because some of you will go off and study, and you're going to read in the Newer Testament where Paul mentions covenants, plural. And you're going to be like, why does he say covenants, plural? I thought there was one. Well, you're going to realize that the only time that he mentions that is when he's talking to people that are already separating the covenants. And he's trying to tell them it's one. Stop doing that. Like Romans 11, verses 11 through 15. It talks about the hardness that has come on Israel in part. They weren't done away with. They were just experiencing discipline. If you read verses 13 through 15, he says, I'm talking to you Gentiles. If their loss meant riches for you, how much will their full inclusion mean? Life from the dead. Paul is saying that God will always be faithful to his singular covenant. The only reason that Israel's experiencing a hardening in part, not full hardening, we, we know Jews that love the Lord. Hardening in part is so that a few Gentiles can be included. Only after Israel is fully included can the nations fully receive the blessing of resurrection. Once you understand this principle, interpreting passages like Galatians 3, 11 through 14 becomes seamless and relatively easy. True. In Galatians 3, the problem is being addressed is that men in the first century took the Mosaic edition. There's Judaizers saying, you've got to be circumcised. They're putting preeminence in the Mosaic edition with more prominence than the promise given to Abraham. Wow. They're taking them as separates. Ooh. They failed to treat the promises as one continuous covenant and missed the point of the Mosaic edition. We have the same problem as the first century, though, but in reverse. We focus on elements of the Abrahamic revelation, and we say that the Mosaic revelation is not important anymore. That the law, we, oh, we don't need law. No, my friends, they were one covenant, always and foremost for one family. The solution is to treat each successive promise as forming one collective promise. Then... When Gentiles start to do that, the blessing that was spoken of to Abraham will come upon the entire earth. Man, that's incredible, isn't it? It is one promise, and if you want to understand the Bible, this will save you a lot of difficulties. Treat them as one. They're like Russian dolls that are fitting one within the other. Is it one doll or nine? Yes. 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 (laughs) Hey, I think you guys got it. We're an hour in. 
But you guys missed last Monday, didn't you? So we want to leave you full. Hey, let's pick up in verse 3, and we're going to get some speed here. Do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. Hey, we want to give you guys another aspect of this concept of the man, the land, and the plan. Man, land, and plan. They work together. They're inextricably linked. They cannot be separated from one another. In the context of the entire Tanakh, the Lord is painting a very specific picture between land and hearts. Look, just consider these passages. Numbers 33. God, he's speaking to the Israelites, and he says, If they fail to cultivate their hearts, then thorns will grow up and ensnare them. Now he's using imagery that is of the land, of the earth, in direct correlation with a man's heart. If you don't cultivate your own heart, thorns will grow. Consider Hosea chapter 10. God is speaking to the Israelites, and he tells them, sow in righteousness and break up the unplowed ground of your hearts. The land is addressed as a metaphor. Then the heart is addressed. Look at verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. The land is addressed, and then the circumcision of the heart is then addressed. There's an intended link between these two things. The man, the land, and the plan. We just finished talking specifically about covenant. Consider the parable of the sower. You guys are familiar with that parable. The soils are related to the conditions of the heart of the recipient. What is going on on the inside is happening on the outside in the parable. They're looking at this ground and they're seeing rocky soil that needs to be broken up. They're seeing soil scorched by the sun. And then the, the fingers pointed and said, that's in your hearts and you need to till up your soil. That's good. Yeah. In Hebrews chapter 6, this is our, our last passage that we wanted to connect specifically in this train of thought. We're warned about land that drinks up the water of the word, the blessing, but it ends up producing something that is not in line with what it's drinking up. It produces thorns and thistles, and it's in danger of being burned. Come on now. Hey, God is making this connection for us. It's between the land, between the state of hearts. The prosperity or the barrenness of the land is connected to the state of the hearts of the people. He then moves on to circumcision in verse 4. It's analogous to breaking up unplowed ground. So if you take a holistic view of the land and of circumcision, it's impossible to come away with the idea you can simply stay the same as you are and it will not affect your surroundings. Oh, come on. You see, ground unplowed just means that you didn't do anything with it. You don't have to do anything for ground to be unplowed. You don't have to do anything for thorns and thistles to grow up. Actually, it's quite the opposite. If you do nothing, then thorns and thistles and unplowed ground, it gets hard, gets scorched by the sun, rocks. You do nothing, and this happens. But we are people that are in the habit of doing something with the righteous law that we have learned. We're in the habit of doing something with the revelation we've been given. All right, I'm going to make a small interjection here. There are very few of us in the room that are gardeners. Uh, 
I quite honestly have always been geared much more towards hunting than farming, uh, work or otherwise. But there are a few men in the room who know what it looks like to tend to a garden. God is drawing a correlation here that for you is a metaphor. For them, it's quite literal because <laughs> their covenant is tied to the geographic piece of land. Yep. Wow. Yeah. That not tending to things in your heart will bring you to a place where you are in opposition to me. So I just want to say unequivocally, this is the time in our day and our life when there's no more sleep, there's no more slumber, no more folding of the hands. Our God is on a war path with the darkness that is around us. Yeah. And it's time for us to marshal our resolve. Yeah. Steal your will. Set your face like flint. We spent enough time doing what the pagans do, participating in that flood of dissipation. Now it's time for us to rise up as the men of God that we are called to. Rip the thorns out. Do not let fear, do not let these things keep you from the direction that God is bringing us as one man and one body tonight. Look, there's one example I do want you to consider just for your understanding of circumcision as a holistic view in the Bible. Take the generation coming out of the desert with Joshua as an example. Their saving faith brought them into the land and out of the desert. So their trust in God, willingness to follow Joshua, brought them out of the place where everyone died. Do you know what the people in the desert were? Circumcised. And yet their faithlessness is what killed them. The uncircumcised people who followed Joshua, followed the Lord, made it out of the desert into the promised land. But you know what God did for people who have saving faith? He brought them to a place called Gilgal where the reproach was rolled away. See, these things are not in conflict. They never have been. You hear Paul in Galatians addressing a misuse of the covenant, an overemphasis of one that is denying the other. Well, the shoe is on the other foot, but we have the same problem in our day and age. God has always been looking for men with saving faith that he might roll your reproach away and mark you as one of his own. Consider Colossians 2, 11. I'm going to read to you from 11 through 13. In him, you were also circumcised. All right, men. Meditate on that for just a moment. In him, regardless of what your parents did or didn't do to you. Some of you were done outside of him. In him, you were circumcised. Why? Because of saving faith, he led you to a place where your reproach was rolled away like Israel at Gilgal. In the putting off of the sinful nature, not done with a circumcision done by the hands of men, praise God, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith. Let's hear that again having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. You don't have the ability to roll your own reproach away. You don't have the ability to tap into the power of God on your own strength or to raise yourself from the dead. But like Abraham, like Moses, and like David, your faith will cause him to bring you to a place where he rolls away your reproach. I'm looking at men that I've watched it happen. Their reproach has been rolled away, and they're not the same human being I knew just a few months ago. 
God is doing this and it is working in us. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. What God is communicating through Jeremiah is the desperate need for the heart change that brings you to a place where reproach has been rolled away and the thorns and thistles are removed so that I can bring fruit and life out of you. The focus was always inward procedure versus outward procedure. But for a specific family, they had both outward and inward. This is what Jeremiah is aiming at. In fact, they were uh, told that if you focus on the inward circumcision, I would take care of the outward procedure. Your land would not grow thorns. That is what Jeremiah is aiming at. This is the holistic picture that can only be painted with a view that the entire Bible is one book. If you just take the Abrahamic covenant and you say, well, all we have to do is be marked in the flesh. Forget the land. Doesn't matter. If you pair that up with what Moses says, you must be circumcised in your hearts, though. You get a different picture, don't you? That is why you see now that the covenants were not separate. They're one. All right. Let's pick up and continue reading and uh, we'll move on. You men of Judah and people of Jerusalem, for my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with, burn with no one to quench it. He, he says, or my wrath will break out like fire. That sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? It does. You ever hear somebody preaching on the wrath of God? I oh, know. You guys got to talk to us tonight. Yeah, we spent all day. Horrible. Does that sound bad to you? Yeah. Or is that something you would like tomorrow along with an ice cream treat? That sounds bad to me. Does it to you? Yeah. It sounds bad. But you have to consider where they first heard that word. The word wrath is first used in Leviticus 26, 28. We already read it tonight. Where God promises to use his wrath to discipline Israel. But he will never abandon his promise that he made with Abraham. Verse Leviticus 26, 40 through 43 says, But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, their treachery against me and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin. A lot of preachers out there telling you these days you don't have to pay for your sin and you do. I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. You say, oh, wait, God promised his wrath is going to be poured out on Jerusalem. Well, that is true. But he also promised that if I pour out my wrath, I still will not remember. I still will not forsake my covenant that I made with them. Man, God is able to do both. And isn't he? He's able to be a God of wrath. And at the same time, he's a God who remembers and is faithful to his covenants. Hey, let's pick up in verse 5 and read down to verse 6. Announce in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Sound the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, Gather together. Let us flee to the fortified cities. Raise the signal and go to Zion. Flee for safety without delay. For I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. Disaster from the north. Man, we have a beautiful image to put on the screen. It's a review image. You guys remember this image? It was preceded by an image that looked almost exactly the same. It looked like, kind of like a, you know, you guys seen the Turkish flag with the moon right there? I don't know, just random correlation in my brain. Uh, It looked like that, that moon that's on the Turkish flag that is a fertile crescent. Now, in the bottom right of your screen there, 
you can see right above Saudi Arabia, I don't know if you can see, but it says Arabian Desert. Now there is a reason why people didn't travel through the Arabian Desert. It's because it was brutal. Absolutely brutal. We hope to travel there one day and preach the gospel. We've done Sinai. But they traveled to the northwest from where they were. We're talking about Babylon here. And they hit Syria and then they took a sharp turn southward and went through Dan, which is what we're talking about here, and into Israel. Look, all enemies had to come through the north of Lebanon and into Israel due to the desert that we just talked about. This is a consistent pattern in Israel's history. And these patterns, they're so important throughout the word, which is why we continue to, to uh, illuminate them for you as we're going through this chapter. Amen. God uses nations coming from the north to chastise his people. In the book of Daniel, there's a ten-nation coalition that comes from the same direction. Guess what? They come from the north. Matthew 24, it describes armies coming down from the north and surrounding Jerusalem. Also articulated in Luke chapter 21. This is a cycle of biblical prophecy. It's not an engineer's pattern. It's not something to be dissected with a microscope. It's a holistic view. It's a step back and a view into the word of God that says, hey, when God brings judgment, when God brings uh, this, this uh, judgment on his nation because of their sin, wow, that usually is coming right there through, from the north. North, in this instance, we want to make clear tonight, does not mean Russia. <laughs> north is not Russia. Okay, we're not talking about far, far, far north, somewhere far away off of that map. We're talking about north here. But in Jeremiah's time, and in times to come, this was God allowing for course correction of his people. Yeah. Oh, come on. With what Nick just said, if a biblical pattern and you're living in Israel and God says, and you knew that every time an enemy comes from the north, that meant destruction... What would you be thinking if God says, I'm bringing enemies from the north? He's not saying I'm bringing them from the south, which you always win against them. He's saying I'm bringing them from the place that they always destroy you. That ought to be some kind of course correction where they go, oh crap, this is different. We're going to have to get this right. Look, as we pick up in verse 7, I'm jumping ahead slightly, but in light of what Justin just said, you should understand what a monumental thing it is. For Jesus to say, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Because you know where he was standing? In the area that we're talking about. In the north, in Israel, in Dan. He's saying, when you're standing in me, the hordes of demonic archon powers out there that have destroyed the earth in the past, in me it has no hold over you. Oh, Verse 7. A lion has come out of his lair. The destroyer of nations has set out. He has left this place. All right, so let's just point out some Peshat biblical stuff here. The lion is Babylon. The lion is a destroyer of nations. We're not depicting your house cat. We're depicting a devourer of men and nations. He's saying, I'm sending a beast down your way, but that beast is a tool that I'm employing for my own purposes. You've not heeded my previous correction, so you've made me, in our parenting class, graduate to the 16-pound mall, and I'm going to use it now. Yeah. And it causes whatever damage it does, because you're going to change your behavior. 
the people have become liable to destruction because of their own sin. Listen, God's people, they're not liable to the destruction of these northern kingdoms because God is somehow petulant or fickle. It is because of their own sin, and it has made them liable to it. 2 Kings 17 depicts a picture very much so like this that we don't have time to get into this evening. But lions came and they're devouring men, devouring the people of the nation, because they did not know the requirements of the God of the land and they were not listening to him. So what he did is he sent literal lions to eat them until they learned to pay attention. Now you, you New Testament Christian, you should recognize 1 Peter 5, verse 8, that says Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What is it that he needs to be able to devour you? For you to make yourself liable through sin and disobedience. But in Christ, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Even if you're living in the days of Jeremiah, Christian. The northern nation. This nation has no merit or righteousness in and of itself. It is fulfilling a role. It is a tool. Like a dog on a chain. Being brought out to terrorize and inflict pain in the hopes that it will cause his people to turn. I guarantee you, Babylon's not a good nation. Even if they're fulfilling God's purpose, they're a nation with a destiny. Remember that with Pharaoh? Not a good guy, but still fulfilling a purpose and a destiny. And like a dog on a chain, when it disobeys or it goes too far in the punishment, which we will read about later in our Monday nights, God disciplines the dog on the chain too. He's like, I told you to do this much to go this far. You, you went this far. So everybody's getting a whipping now. You need to understand, God is chastising his children, not because he wants them to die or end, but because he must affect change for the sake of the promise he made to Abraham. The truth is that God doesn't desire that anyone would perish. But if people want to sin, he will give them what they want and they will have to pay the consequences listen we live in a day where things like abortion crisis rape murder they're abundant and the result of our sin even if we are forgiven as a person of sin there's still consequences well saints this extends on a national level what is true of you is true of the nation the things that we're seeing around us have consequences and they will extend into our lives That's not God's will. God didn't set out to let his son be sacrificed so that these things would be propagated. That is the direct result of us making ourselves liable to destruction. Listen, another passage we don't have time to read, but you should look into is Deuteronomy 29, 19. It says that your own persistence in doing what is wrong, despite the fact that you've heard his warning and you think I'm going to have a blessing, It's going to bring about disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. It's actually very reminiscent of Hebrews 6, almost like the writers of the gospel knew Deuteronomy well. (laughs) Our own actions are what bring this about, and God's people have brought it about in Jeremiah's day, but it does not mean the overall promise is done. In fact, it's the course correction that Leviticus 26, through the conduit Moses, said would happen so that his people are purified. Let's get verse 8, and this will continue to build. So put on sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned away from us. Here we're starting to see Jeremiah's divine dialogue. 
I don't know if you noticed it in the previous verses, but that is all God speaking. And now you're starting to see Jeremiah in his own words. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? This is a divine dialogue that Jeremiah is going to begin with the Lord. And notice his response to what, what Judah just shared with us. God is giving his people over to an enemy. You think God won't do that? He absolutely will. God will give you over to a foreign power, to an enemy, to something that will absolutely decimate you if it means that he will get your attention. Yeah. Now some people go, how, how can the Lord do that? How could the Lord be bringing this on me? How could he give me over to, I mean, you should think of David's words. Don't give me over to the hands of men. I want to be punished by you, Lord. But God would give his people over to foreign powers. But notice Jeremiah's response. So put on sackcloth, lament, and wail. For the fierce anger of, of the Lord has not turned away from us. He didn't say, God, this isn't fair. He didn't say, God, I don't deserve this. He didn't say it's too much to handle. It wasn't to blame the Lord for giving them over to other enemies. It wasn't to look at the circumstance and say, God can't do this to me. His response was to repent. Come on. His response Man, was to notice the fact of the matter is that this is happening. And the only thing I can do it is just to get right. Amen. Folks, that will save you a lot of trouble and pain. Amen. To not blame the Lord, not blame him for. And I'm telling some, some of us are so clever, we would never actually blame the Lord. We start saying things like, man, this job is just too hard. As if God didn't give it to you thinking it was going to refine you. <laughs> or I, I just don't know what to do with my kids. As if God didn't know that they were going to be born to you. We say things like that and we tend to blame the Lord. But in all honesty, what he's trying to get you to do is notice your state and repent. Man, if we start there, I promise it'll save us many times of having to try, talk with the pastors, figure out why is things not going right? Why don't I just seem to be able to fit in and fellowship? Because you have, to, you have to realize the reason why you're being given over to your enemies. It's called God trying to get you to repent. Remember what we said? Divine promise comes with divine course correction. You have a promise, God will course correct you in, enough until you repent and get on with the program into what he's trying to get you to do. So let's pick up in verse 9. I promise this is going to get awesome and uplifting. In that day, declares the Lord, the king and the officials will lose heart, the priests will be horrified, and the prophets will be appalled. Then I said, Ah, sovereign Lord, how completely you have deceived this people and Jerusalem by saying, You will have peace when the sword is at our throats. Before we get to the seemingly Bible difficulty that we have in verse 10, <laughs> verse 9, we wanted to point out that it's clearly delineating the three parts of the government of Israel. Uh, the king, the priests, and the prophets. And when we know that when the government goes astray, it, they will not escape the punishment of the Lord either. They're not out of his purview. They're not something special. When the government goes, when the yeah, kings, elected the priests, the prophets... It's just like what we have. We have a three-branch system of government. And guess what? When our three-branch system of government continues to go astray the way that it is doing in our day, trust me, the Lord will bring judgment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Come on. Verse 10 is an interesting one. Look, we want to uh, plainly state 
that there have been endless and fruitless, fruitless. debates on this verse, but tonight we want to say that there should not be. There shouldn't be any debates about this verse <laughs> because Jeremiah himself never prophesied peace. He never was the one that said, you will have peace. It was the false prophets. So what's exactly happening here? God is not the one who deceived anyone. The people were deceiving themselves by their own wickedness, by their own desires, by their own sin. And God said, yes, I will give you what you want because you continue to go after this. In 1 Kings 22, there's an interesting situation that happens here. Uh-huh. You, we kind of get insight into God's heavenly counsel in this chapter. Okay? The false prophets, they're prophesying in the name of the Lord something that was not true. So is it actually in the name of the Lord or is it only in pretense? Since they wanted deception, God saw that a deceiving spirit would succeed. So he gave them what they wanted in the first place. First, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 also talks to us about a powerful delusion that the Lord gives to people because that is the desire of their hearts. But tonight we are going to be faithful to till the unplowed ground of our own hearts so that we can properly reflect our King. Amen. The last thing we want to mention, an interesting point in this verse, the Hebrew word for throats, this portion, it actually means soul, nefesh. It's the Hebrew word for nefesh. So it's not just that they had a sword to their throats. Jeremiah is saying they had a sword to their soul. Their eternal state was in question, and they did not even realize it because of their own deception. Let's continue in verse 11 and 12. At that time, this people in Jerusalem will be told, a scorching wind from the barren heights in the desert blows toward my people, but not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too strong for that comes from me. Now I pronounce my judgments against them. Look, there are a couple things that we want to do here. First off, I want to say this passage is discussing the fact that they have not previously heeded correction. They've not been refined in the land. Now they're going to be blown out of the land. Much like Leviticus 26 promised would happen in this exact scenario and that he would not abhor them when they were in the land of their enemies and he would bring them back. But something that's of particular interest, given what Nick just shared with you. I want to show you a passage from the Alex X in Jeremiah 4. That time they shall say to this people and to Jerusalem, there is a spirit of addiction to a delusion in the wilderness. The way of the daughter of my people is not to purity nor to holiness. Saints, what is being communicated here by Jewish sages who are translating this to the Gentile-speaking world, is that what was happening is a spirit of delusion men had become addicted to. Now, I know that doesn't ring any bells for anyone, (laughs) but a false prophet saying, in the name of the Lord, every day is Friday. All you need to do is think positively, tithe or donate is a delusion that people are addicted to. Now, could you say 
The Lord has deceived these people. Yeah, I, I guess from a certain perspective, a sinful one, you could say that the Lord is the one that did the deceiving. But the reality is it's the false prophets and the people who are addicted to the delusion that are heeding it as if it's the voice of God because it's what they wanted to hear. Jeremiah is commenting on the state of affairs around him. And God's response is, man, this has gotten to the place where I can't refine you where you're at. I'm going to have to rip you up out of the land. I'm going to have to change every bit of your circumstances, but I will go as far as I need to to change your heart's condition because I will not leave my people uncircumcised. I have not given up on the descendants of Abraham, and I'll take this as far as I need to, and if I'm going to refine them all the way in Babylon, that's what I will do. Saints, there are a few of you that have watched that happen. Heed it. Follow it. God has uprooted, brought you to a position where he can refine you because you could not be refined where you were. But there is still hope and light in that if you will turn and plow the ground that has had thorns and thistles in the past. Look, I want to go to verse 13 and 14. And we have a few things that are very neat here that uh, we want to point out to you. Look, he advances like the clouds. His chariots come like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, we are ruined. O Jerusalem, watch the evil from your hearts and be saved. How long will you harbor wicked thoughts? So we're getting back to Jeremiah's dialogue here. And Jeremiah is, is just hearing what God is saying. God's saying that, look, you, can, you couldn't be refined in my land. You, dis, you denied the refinement in the land. Well, I'm going to refine you out of the land. Yeah. And then Jeremiah is seeing something here and he's saying, look, he's advancing like the clouds. It's interesting phrasing. In Hebrew literature, this phrase coming on the clouds refers to God coming and rooting out the enemies in the land. When you read passages like Deuteronomy 33, Psalm 68, Isaiah 19, Matthew 24, Revelation 1, 1 Thessalonians 4, it all mentions God coming on the clouds. And I got to tell you, it doesn't mean a rapture. It is always picturing God defending his land against all enemies that are in the land. Well, I got to tell you how big of a problem this is for Jerusalem at this point. Because when God is going to come rid enemies out of his land, yes, he will rid foreign enemies out of his land, but he will also rid the domestic enemies out of his land. You sing the song, he's coming on the clouds. And you think that that's sometimes a good thing. Well, it depends on which side of the land line you're standing on. Yeah. If you are now an enemy, then God is coming after you. And that is what's happening in this passage. Jeremiah is speaking to the people about God coming on the clouds. And he has eagles with them. That is Babylon. And those eagles are not there to just, you know, set up a big pizza party. Those eagles are a tool from the hand of God to help God who's coming on the clouds refine the enemies out. And in this sense, the enemies is Israel. Man, don't think that just because you're in a good solid church that teaches the word, that God won't come on the clouds and rid the domestic enemies out just as quick as he would foreign enemies. God will absolutely do that. He cannot tolerate an enemy. Whether you've known the Lord for a long time and suddenly... You start to love a delusion and suddenly you've got the sword to your soul and suddenly you just keep loving the delusion. 
then he will come on the clouds to rid you out as well. Look, suffice it to say that the coming of the Lord is a great and terrible day. He will have a pure bride no matter what it costs. This is one of our favorite subjects. We would like to speak for an hour about the cloud rider that (laughs) Moses saw. You can study that on your own, though, and you will be blessed by it, and you will learn more about the God that you serve and his actual character. Let's pick up in verse 15, and uh, we'll keep rolling. A voice is announcing from Dan, proclaiming disaster from the hills of Ephraim. Tell this to the nations, proclaim it in Jerusalem. A besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. They surrounded her like men guarding a field. Because she rebelled against me, declares the Lord. We've been to Israel. We've been up to the north in the hills of Ephraim. We've been over by Dan. And what we've seen there is right next to that portion is a place called Caesarea Philippi. Does that ring a bell to anybody? This is where Jesus leaned over and taught his disciples about the gates of hell. This is where Jesus said, hey, the gates of hell will not overcome what I am putting inside of you. The gates of hell will not defeat what I am putting in you. Israel's chosen as a nation to overcome the gates of hell. But right here, should wrench your heart. The gates of hell are now overcoming the Israel that we're talking about. Yeah. The gates of hell are now overcoming God's people. And this never was meant to happen. In 16 and 17, we have the enemy surrounding Israel like men guarding a field. Because she has rebelled against me. This imagery it plays out in, in patterns of prophecy. Jerusalem is constantly referred to as a field that needs to be cultivated. It needs to be guarded. And if it is not, God will actually guard that person from it. If it is not guarded, then he will guard you from actually participating with Israel. Just for the sake of it, I'll read it aloud as Nick's commenting on it. Tell this to the nations, everybody around. Proclaim it to Jerusalem. A besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. They surround her like men guarding a field because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Okay, so do you see uh, right here, there's a port, yeah, here it is, eagles. This portion of eagles is are a result of sin against the cloud rider that my brothers were just talking about in the previous passage. But cultivating the field would have prevented all of this from happening. Tilling up that soil, making sure that it was right for truth, justice, and righteousness that God was saying, please, seek these things. Till up your soil. Go after these so that I do not have to rip you out of the land. But they would not. And so they themselves were guarded from the land. As we continue in 18, we're going to continue with Jeremiah's commentary, with his wrestling with what is going on and his internal thoughts. We are privy to these things. Let's learn from them tonight. So before we get into 18, I've got to tell you, this is a, a big one coming. In verse 16 through 17, I told, we would clue you in to some of the dialogue. And in the divine dialogue, verses 16 and 17 are God speaking. God is saying, proclaim it to Jerusalem. A besieging army is coming from a distant land. Man, are you curious about Jeremiah's response? 
Yeah. And let's read verse 18. Your own conduct and actions have brought this upon you. This is your punishment. How bitter it is. How it pierces to the heart. Oh, my anguish, my anguish. I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent. For I have heard the sound of the trumpet. I have heard the battle cry. Oh, how bitter it is. Oh, my anguish, my anguish. That word for anguish in Hebrew is the Strong's number 4578. It either means, oh, my guts, my inner being, or it can be, you know, the most sensitive part of a man that we read about in the Bible as sacred stones. (laughs) But he's saying, oh, it hurts. Oh, I can feel it inside of me. Lord, I can hear what you're going to do. And it's bringing me anguish. I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart. Every this man is one in of here them. just profoundly gained understanding into what Jeremiah is saying in that moment. <laughs> this is one of the brief windows inside of Jeremiah the artist. This is the spiritual artist painting a spiritual picture. And boy, are we glad that we can read this here. Amen. Jeremiah has circumcised his heart. That's why he's a prophet. That's why he's with the Lord. But the entire nation has not circumcised their heart. Man, you have trouble in your workplace being the only Christian there? Imagine being the only person who loves the Lord in a nation. Jeremiah is understanding God's counsel and is seeing what God will do. Man, think about that for a second. God, reveal to us your plans. God, reveal your will for this earth. What if he reveals to you that he's going to destroy everything around you and all the people that you know? Would that cause you to leap for joy or would that cause anguish in your heart? Jeremiah is a singular man, alone, in God's counsel. And he's seeing what God will do. And as a result, Jeremiah now feels what the Lord will feel. God has taken a man and placed upon that man the burden that he feels himself. Can you imagine that? What is evangelism? What is prophecy? What is pastoring a church look like? What does teaching the word of God look like? It is like getting in the counsel of God and feeling what he feels about a particular people that you're around. And Jeremiah is feeling that. Now his job is to transfer the impact that the Lord has placed on his soul. Man, what a calling, isn't it? Mm -hmm. His job is to feel the anguish of God in his heart and then transfer the impact. So you want to be a prophet. You want to be a minister. You want to be a pastor. You want to be a pillar to a church. You've got to understand what that means. It means that you might be the only man who gets in the counsel of God and feels what he feels. Now take that to a nation. Man, most of us aspire to be a prophet to a nation or a pastor in a nation. Man, that's a whole nother level, is it? Now you have to feel what God feels for an entire nation. I want to ask you, what is your job? We heard yesterday about our divine design. Come on. We heard yesterday that we are supposed to fulfill the same role that Jesus has, that we are supposed to rule and dominate, that God has a divine design that we are supposed to discern. 
Well, what does that look like? That is your job of getting in the counsel of God, hearing what He is saying, feeling what He is feeling, and then transferring that impact. Your job is not to be nice to everyone around you. Your job is not to win numbers unless God wants numbers. Your job is not to be mean to everyone around you. Your job is to feel what God feels. And I got to say, for Jeremiah, it was a pretty awful feeling, wasn't it? Can you imagine being the only man who is seeing the counsel of God and you have this weight on your shoulder? You have the weight of judgment in your soul. You feel... You have to feel the sword to your throat or your soul before they feel it in them. You need to ask yourself why you're getting into ministry if your goal is to get into ministry. You need to ask yourself why you want to go to another nation if that is what God has spoken to you. Because that's going to cost a lot. It's not always going to be uh, tea and crumpets. It's going to look like a lot of travailing and anguish in your soul. It's going to look a lot like you getting into the counsel of God and say, God, what do you want done with the people around me? Because I can feel it. I can see the judgment rising. I can see the things going on and something has to change. Your job is to be impacted by the Lord and then transfer that impact. Jeremiah carried this impact that the Lord made on him his entire life. Kind of like Paul saying, I bear in my body the marks of Christ. Consider the book of Lamentations. His whole life was impacted by the Lord and not in the, in the way most people would act for, ask for. He wrote the book of Lamentations and you can see even more into how God impacted him afterwards. Look, the message to you today is to consider the impact God is making on you. Is he making an impact on you just for you alone or is it for your wife and your kids and for the nation around you and for this church? You get into his counsel and you feel what he feels, you might actually start paying attention to what's going on around us. You might actually start transferring an impact. And I got to tell you, he's doing that. I'm seeing you guys rise up in special ways. I'm seeing guys like Tisdale who is getting in the counsel of God, asking how he can be impacted because he's going to have to make an impact. I'm seeing men like Paul Rosales being impacted by the Lord and bringing that to his family. I'm seeing men like Rob being impacted by the Lord and he's bringing it to his household. This is the way, this is the truth, and this is the life that Jesus spoke of. Let's get verse 20 and 21. You hear this build in Jeremiah's own thoughts. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruins. In an instant, my tents are destroyed. My shelter in a moment. How long must I see the battle standard and hear the sound of trouble? Jeremiah is speaking and he's talking about his own tents. His own shelter. His place of dwelling. And he's watching it crumble before him. He's watching it getting destroyed. How long must I see the battle standard? How long must I hear the sound of the trumpet? You know, that's a really great question. We can answer it for Jeremiah. But Jeremiah is sitting in here right now. He has no idea how long. (laughs) He has no clue how long he's going to have to be in front of an obstinate nation. He has no idea how long he's going to have to speak the word of God to people that don't want to hear it. He has no idea how long he's going to have to have these experiences. He does not know the answer. So we want to ask you tonight, what kind of resolve do you have? What kind of resolve do you have, future pastor? 
What kind of resolve do you have, future minister of the gospel, future prophet to the nation? What resolve do you have? Have you counted the cost? We want to tell you tonight that we've counted the cost and we have found our king worthy. Amen. Amen. Hey, listen, I'm just going to make it a little heavier because I think it's what the Lord's doing. We keep saying prophet to the nation. All of those things are totally true. If you are in Christ, he told you to pick up your cross and follow him. So lest you think that there is a greater burden for someone else and you're exempting yourself in your mind in this moment, your job in the image of God that we preached on yesterday and we were all impacted by, we were encouraged by because it is the truth, is to reflect the Almighty in his feelings. Listen, we need to consider the severity of the situation that we're in. Are you reflecting God but your resolve gives out in about two weeks with your family? Do you tell them, I'm right where I need to be, this is God's will, and then a water pipe breaks and you immediately retract your statement? Do you tell your wife and your children, this is how we operate because this is how God has called us to? This is our function and this is the image he's called us to be in. And then you get pissed off a few hours later and you throw it right out of the water. We're talking about a kind of resolve that is faithfulness to the end. A kind of resolve we must dig into, tap into. This is not a sprint. This is an all-out agony to the finish line. Yeah. I know powerful men of God that did fantastic for just a few years. Oh, yeah. More talented than me, more talented than most of you in the room. Your talent has got nothing to do with it. Your resolve to serve the Almighty God, no matter what it costs you every morning when you wake up, and it's taking a little piece of your flesh out each time. It's not dying in a moment that is difficult. It's the resolve for 50 years that is an indetermined period of time for you to do what is right every day. Come on. If we're going to stand with this message, if we're going to stand and follow our king into combat, we need to be ready to march behind him as long as it takes until it's your day to go home. Come on. Saints, this is a message for us in our day and our time, and it's coming right out of Jeremiah's own divine dialogue with the Lord. He does not know the answer to the question. You know what the right answer, though, is in Jeremiah finds? This is as long as it takes. And he proved that out in his life. I want to see every member of my family in here finish and cross into glory. I've seen a few do it, and I'm longing to see the rest of you do. These are the days that we steal our resolve. There can be no compromise. There can be no change of the standard. Not in weeks, not in months, not in decades. We stand where we stand, and there is no other place that we can be. Look, as we pick up in 22, this is the Lord's response as he continues to speak with him. Brother Linton, get 22, and then fairly quickly we'll move into 23 afterwards. My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. This is God stating the affairs of the nation. How long, O Lord? My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. This is what is going on around. They're in the same state that Genesis 6 was, where God was grieved at his own creation. And God is about to grind it down 
to that same place that he did in Genesis 6 all over again. In fact, all the way back to Genesis 1. (laughs) But in each of these circumstances, there was always a remnant that he preserved. And we mentioned this earlier, but he will quite literally do the same to you and I if it's necessary to preserve life. Grind us all the way back down to the beginning. Get verse 23, Linton and Justin will expound on that. I looked at the earth, and it was formless and empty, and at the heavens, and the light was gone. So we're back to Jeremiah speaking. God spoke and said, my people are fools, they do not know me. Referencing Genesis 6. Jeremiah then says, I looked at the earth and it was tohu vavohu. And he's referencing Genesis 1. Jeremiah is saying, I looked at the earth and it was destroyed like it was in the beginning. Man, we've had some progress from Genesis 1 till now, haven't we? To, To Jeremiah's day. I mean, we had Solomon's temple. We had all kinds of exciting things that have happened. And Jeremiah is saying, it is reverted all the way back to where it began. In total and utter chaos. Israel has failed to break up the unplowed unplowed ground and circumcise their hearts. Because they failed to break up the unplowed ground, it affected the entire earth around them. As a result of Israel failing, the earth is in utter chaos. And even, it says, the heavens are in disarray. Man, that's incredible, isn't it? Even the heavens are in tohu vavohu because Israel has failed. It's true for Israel. And it's true for the rest of the world. As it goes for Israel, it goes for the rest of the world. If Israel is in total chaos, well, the entire world will be in total chaos. If Israel is in total chaos, then the entire heavens will be in total chaos. But you know that lesson applies to you as well in so many ways. If you are in total chaos, then everything around you will be in total chaos. If you don't have shalom inside of you, then it's not your wife's fault. You know, everybody's responsible, but it's no wonder that she's in total chaos as well. But you know what? There's a solution to that problem. In the beginning, what did God do when there was tohu vavohu? Man, he said, let there be light. Amen. I want to tell you God's answer to total chaos is always first and foremost to shine light on. on the subject. Man, you'll never know what you need to do to change things until God's light shines on the matter and shows you where the chaos is. Yeah. Look, I want to read to you. Uh, I'm going to read a John 1 and then Nick's going to expound on it. But think about this. There's a pattern here that Jeremiah is relaying and John sees it as well in the Newer Testament. He starts out in John 1 by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness. That light shines in the tohu vavohu chaos. But the darkness has not understood it, not overwhelmed it, not controlled it, not overpowered it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a, a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Sounds like... 
John, the disciple that Jesus loved, might have had an experience with this light that he's talking about. Yeah. Sounds like John maybe maybe got close to this light. He, he was able to look into that light, and when he looked into the light, he looked around, and what he saw was also light. The, the chaos that was inside of him was restored, and he was able to go forth and restore that chaos for others. The same thing that was happening to Israel in the first century, the same thing that was happening to Israel in Jeremiah was also happening in the first century. But this light was always the solution. God had the solution for us. Amen. In 1 John 1, John is writing again. And he opens up his book in a very similar manner. It says, that which was from the beginning. Do you hear the similarities? Uh -huh. yeah. Which we have heard. Which we have seen with our eyes. Which we have looked at. Our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father, was with the Father, and has appeared to us. John understood from the writings of Jeremiah and from Israel's history that they could be redeemed from tohu babohu. They could be redeemed from utter chaos. They could be redeemed from getting ground into an utter stump in the ground. This is always the answer for us because it was the, always the answer for them. It's time to get close to the Lord. It's time to look into His character. It's time to get more intimate with who He is. It's time to look into His light so that we can see ourselves rightly and we can walk in that divine armament that Ephesians 6 is talking to us about. Amen. Amen. If we turn to truth, righteousness, and justice... Our God will give us his life. Amen. That's a good word. Verse 24 through 26. Actually, Linton, I'm going to walk us for a little ways. If you can get me through 29, and I'm going to interrupt you a couple times as we do it. I looked at the mountains, and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked, and there, was, there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert. All of its towns lay in ruins. Before the Lord, before his fierce anger. This should remind you of Hebrews 6, of Deuteronomy 29, 19, of each of the passages we've been reading. This is the effect of sin on the earth. Jeremiah is seeing this. He's experiencing the imagery. As we keep going in 27, this is the Lord responding to what Jeremiah is seeing and experiencing. This is what the Lord says. The whole land will be ruined, though I will not destroy it completely. Praise the living yeah. God. Yeah. What he said in Leviticus 26 is still true in Jeremiah's day. Amen. Utter destruction is coming, but he will not destroy it completely. There is hope and there is life. Get verse 28. Therefore, the earth will mourn and the heavens above will grow dark. All right, are you catching the point that my brothers made earlier? The heavens and the earth are affected by what the people of God do for better or worse. Yeah. We are the sons of God, the image of God on the earth. And there is an effect that is a result of it. Get the last part of verse 28 for me. Because I have spoken and will not relent, I decided and will not turn back. Look, we don't have time to go into this this evening, but look at Luke 23, 26 through 43. At some point in your own time, we're going to release these notes in just a couple days. And you'll see a cyclical pattern happening here. 
There's events that are surrounding armies that affect Israel and Jerusalem, signs in the heavens that are occurring that is just before the redemption of his people after a severe refinement. Now, as we pick up in 29, Jeremiah is going to begin seeing and describing events that the Lord is impacting him with. So hear Jeremiah's words in 29 through 30. At the sound of horsemen and archers, every town takes, takes to flight. Some go into the thickets, some climb up among the rocks. All the towns are deserted. No one lives in them. What are you doing, O oh devastated one? Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why shave your eyes with paint? You adorn yourself in vain. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. All right, so in verse 29, they're hiding among the thickets, hiding among the rocks. It should remind you of passages where men are crying out for the rocks to fall upon them that they might hide from. This is imagery. Verse 30 is what I want you to catch, though. What are you doing, O devastated one? Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why shade your eyes with paint? Why adorn yourself in vain? Your lovers despise you. This is a historical backdrop as well as a prophetic message about things that are to come. Who do you remember from Chronicles that had a man coming after them that was anointed of God to bring a sword and cleanse northern Israel? See, I got a four son named after him. The guy's name was Jehu. Rode a chariot like a crazy man. Said, come, come with me and seal my zeal for God. And then he cuts down all of the prophets of Baal. Then there's a very specific woman who knew that she had been in sin, had refused to repent, knew that the judgment of God was on its way, embodied in a mighty warrior ready to take heads. And what does she do up on her balcony? She paints her eyes in her face, puts on jewels, adorns herself as if nothing has ever happened and her lovers are going to save her. And did the eunuchs in her own house throw her off the wall? Jeremiah is referencing their own history, saying, you are like that woman Jezebel. You're painting yourself and acting as if nothing is wrong, and yet death is coming. It is coming with fierceness, fast, imminent. You cannot wink your way out of this with a little face paint. Now, this is not the only thing that it's referring to, though. It's also prophetic, as I mentioned earlier. Israel will depend upon alliances that the Bible calls lovers that will fail her. Hosea, Ezekiel, they speak about a day coming when she has made herself secure by painting her eyes, by making these friendships, and she will depend upon them. And God will wipe those lovers away and leave her with nothing, but a remnant will turn and want to worship their one true husband. But what I want to look at with you is what the Spirit says to the churches in Revelation. Specifically about a woman named Jezebel inside of God's own house. Revelation 2.20 is something Justin is going to get. And he's going to go all the way down through verse 22. Then Nick's going to help us out with Revelation 3.15 through 22. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality. 
but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I know your deeds. Revelation 3.15 That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. White clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Says to the churches. Saints, we addressed Jezebel among the churches. Revelation 3 is about Laodicea. God has always been in the business of refining his people. In this Jezebel spirit that is projecting an outward image that is good, that is for the Lord, while leading people into sin, is something the Lord is saying, I will tolerate no longer. I will make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, no matter what they call themselves. Jeremiah is warning his people that there is an imminent threat like Jehu coming for you. Laodicea lets us know, though, that we can find salve for our eyes. Amen. That you can find the resolve, the pure gold, the divine works that he has called you to. That he rebukes and disciplines those that he loves. Yeah. Saints, I believe that he loves you. It's time that we heed him and we conform to the image that he's called us to. Yeah. That we might be victorious with our God. He's going at our head. He's going out before us. And if we are victorious with him, we will sit on the same throne that he did. Amen. Ruling and reigning beside him. We are called to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's time that we recognize the same trappings that have been on God's people since the beginning and put them to death. Hey, let's start to look at uh, verse 31 together. I hear a cry as of a woman in labor, a groan as of one bearing her first child. The cry of daughter Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hand and saying, Alas, I am fainting. My life is given over to murderers. Man, i got to say, this is one of the most... Um, impacting passages that you can read about Israel. When you hear that, daughter of Zion, it's talking about Jerusalem. And that's a name that the the prophet gives the city that God loves. It's not just a city, it's His daughter. It is His precious one that He loves. But there's a problem with His precious one at this point. She's stretching out her hands and she's saying, I'm fainting. My life is given over to murderers. And it's a tragedy to see the daughter of a king in that situation, isn't it? When you hear Jeremiah say, I hear the cry as of a woman in labor, the groan as of one bearing her first child, you ought to be thinking in your mind of Isaiah 26 when 
Israel is standing up saying, we were called to bring promise to the world, but we have not brought salvation. We have given birth to the wind. Israel is called to bring, that, bring birth that salvation to the world. But at this point in time, she has not. She's crying. She's groaning. She's stretching out her hands. She's fainting. But I want to tell you, this is not the end of the book. This is not the end of the story of Israel. Israel did bring about salvation to the world. Israel birthed Yeshua, Hamashiach, the salvation of the world. You see, like Laodicea, Israel needed Christ to be fully formed inside of her. And you are just like Laodicea as well. You need Christ fully formed in you. The truth is about Israel, about his daughter Zion, they will finish well. And that is a promise you can take to the bank. The question for the end of tonight is, will you? I want to say it's a resounding yes. I want to say that hope in Israel completing its task is your hope as well. That even though in times like this, when the daughter of Zion is grieving, fainting, and giving over to murderers, God still had one promise, one covenant that was never broken into segments, and He always remembered it. That same hope that Israel has, you can have as well because you are in Christ. You are an heir of the promise through Him. So tonight, you may feel like you are fainting. You may hear what we're preaching and you may feel like your life is given over to murders. You might be feeling like I have not made the impact that you have made on me. I have not brought it to my wife and my children. And yet, the message to you tonight is Israel brought birth to, to salvation. You can still too. And you will. You may be fainting now, but your hope needs to grow in the Lord. You may feel like you're fainting and that there is no way you can continue on and bring about the promise God has. Believe me, I know that feeling. I know what it's like to look at a promise and say there is no possible way I can do this. I know what it's like to wrestle in my mind and say, well, I'm not as good as this brother at that. And then cascade down into, well, I might just not be good at anything. And then cascade down into, well, I may not, I may not be able to fulfill the promise of God in my life. And then cascade down into, he probably really hasn't even promised it to me anyway. I know what that's like, and I want to tell you, none of that is true. That is a lie that the enemy has tried to sell you. You just need to realize you're asleep and waking up and realize that God is in this place and that if He can do it through Israel, He can do it through you too. As we stand, we want to pray and we want to invite that fresh wind of the Holy Spirit to breathe hope into your lives. As Brother Nick prays and uh, our pastors lead us, we really want to grind right back to where we started. The presence of the Lord has been here the whole time. It's us that need to awaken to the calling. They need to awaken to His presence. They need to awaken to the reality of the conflict that we are participating in, one way or another. As we pray and our pastors lead us, I want you to think in your own soul, what is it that needs to awaken in me tonight that has been asleep for far too long? Shame. Shame.
Lift your hands and your hearts to your king tonight. Father, Father, we fix our eyes on you tonight. We fix our eyes on the one whose eyes blaze like fire. We fix on the one who wears righteous white robes. We fix our eyes on the one who has many crowns on his head. We fix on our eyes on the one who is victorious and who will be victorious. Father, because our greatest desire, Lord, is to come up next to you as your army, as your people, as your warriors, mighty God. Father, when we fix our eyes on you, Lord, it strengthens us in our inner man. It strengthens us in our inner being. So tonight, Lord God, we know where to put our eyes. Father, we're asking that you would strengthen your people tonight, Lord God. Father, we say tonight that we have thought about the cost, Lord God. We have counted it, Lord God. And we say yes and amen to you, mighty God. You are worth it, Lord. King, you are worth the cost of our life. You are worth the cost of our perseverance, Lord. Lord, we give it to you with gladness and joy, mighty King. Lord, our hearts are resolved to give you what you are worthy of. May the Lamb receive the reward of his suffering in us tonight and every day that we have on this planet. Saints, as we're engaging with God's presence, engaging with his word, I want to remind you, as Paul says in, in Romans, is there an advantage in being a Jew? Yes, much in every way. But is there an, also an added benefit of being a Gentile? Now this part you didn't say. I'll say. Yeah, there, there's an added benefit that we can look at Israel and find out what will happen with us. Jeremiah 4.1 began with the word if. <laughs> if. That very word encapsulates hope, which is one of the last things that was shared at the conclusion of the chapter. Amen. If it, there's hope for Israel, there's hope for you. Amen. And specifically with those three components in verse 1 and 2 of Jeremiah 4, if you, Israel, will return, then return to me, Amen for some direction of where to bring that repentance. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight, no longer go astray. So we're talking about repentance from idolatry of any kind. Then in verse 2, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way. Well, I want to just connect one main thing I hope that you got. Is that from this scripture coupled with one in Isaiah, you see the full armor of God. If you repent, if you turn from idolatry and just put on the full armor of God that engages his name and character like we see here in Jeremiah 4, then what's the result? Then the nations will invoke blessings by him and in him they will boast. The nations are longing to see God revealed in you. And it's all... A matter of if. Which I take as a certainty in this church that it will. And it does. Think about the times that you repented. And the presence of God is right there. It's been waiting the whole time. 
to reveal His truth, His justice, and His righteousness. So the heaviness of a condition that is unrepented of yet is only for the purpose to bring you to the position where God's gaining glory through you as you turn to truth, justice, and righteousness. Let me put up Romans 11, 15. These gentlemen read this tonight. I'm only reiterating this, and I'm going to put this in context. For if Israel's disciplining from the Lord to make sure that their singular covenant would be able to be fulfilled. When they get disciplined, it actually brought reconciliation for all of us. It did. It did. What will it be when they are accepted? What will it be when God fulfills His promise to them first? But the resurrection of all of mankind. Yeah, that's good. You need to let that sink into your soul. This, this, this string that we did earlier about understanding that it's a singular covenant that is just over and over and over expanded upon is something that all of us need to, to dwell upon. If you'll give us till sometime no later than tomorrow about noon, you need to listen to this again. I am. I'm not asking you to. I'm telling you as your pastor. You need to listen to this again before next week at this time. Amen. Amen. What you hear tonight is an incredible, guaranteed promise. If their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their, Israel's, acceptance be but the resurrection? And you need to pair it with the weightiness that you're feeling now about having the resolve that you need to join with him in the battle plan that's going forth. There is a battle that is before us. There is a a commander, a kingly, stately march that is going out. And we desire that every man and woman in this room be able to join and move forward. But it's going to take some kind of serious resolve inside of you that actually trusts in the promises that God makes. You need to consider this word tonight. Because God is, we are, let me put those two together. God is leading us into battle. LCM is going into battle. It is before us. I can hear the sound of the trumpets. I can hear the sound of the soldiers getting in the right place. And I'm talking about the soldiers in this room. Come on. But if you're not fully aware of this, if you're just enjoying that we're in dark days and we have light in Goshen, you're going to miss the fact that God is picking a fight and he wants you to come along and fight with him. Come on. Why is the armor that Pastor Matt mentioned so important? Because you're about to go into battle. He is rousing us. He's been training us. He's been assuring up our footing. He's been strengthening us in every possible way. But it ain't for nothing. It's because he wants to show his divine promise that he made first to Israel, and he's going to allow us the great privilege of getting to exercise our resolve on the battlefield. Join hands with the people around you. Get shoulder to shoulder with somebody. 